The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. At times it seems like when you work on your professional career, your personal life seems to fall behind. Then, when you work on improving your personal obligations, the professional part of your life begins to suffer. Is there any way to keep them both humming along at a successful pace? Welcome to Master Your Life with hosts Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin. We'll take the guesswork out of which part of you is more important and show you the success stories of others that can help you realize that you can manage it all. Now, here are your hosts, Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin. Welcome to Master Your Life. I'm host Dr. Howard Rankin, and along with my co-host Leah Mattinson, we're here to give you more inspiration, insight, and intelligence, and we certainly have a lot of that with today's great guest. But before we get to our guest, uh, Leah, tell me a little bit about your week. Have you got something valuable for us from the week? <laughs> well, I've had, yes, a very, as usual, a very interesting week. Uh, my insight, I think, this week, I've been on the road a ton uh, and uh, babysitting my grandson, who is two years old, well, almost two years old, and just taking him out uh, into different stores this past week, uh, doing some shopping, and noticed how many of the aisles when we first walk into the store are completely just laden with candy and sugary treats and chips and pop. And and I haven't been struck by that for a few years because I myself kind of steer clear of that stuff. But with my little guy tagging along, everything's right at eye level. And I just went, it's like he wants chips, chips, chips. And <laughs> I'm like, holy, it's like a lot of temptation resistance for, for less than a two-year-old. So... Uh, yeah, I think that parents and grandparents are fighting a, a battle every time you walk into a store. So just my kind of notice of the week. Yeah, and, and it's how, and it, go ahead. And, and so, how about for you, Howard? How is how's well, your week been? <laughs> it's been fine, and and I really want don't want to take any more time away from our great guest because yeah. what you've just said is very relevant to his fantastic body of work, which is in. Uh, healthy living, lifestyle as medicine, health promotion and prevention. I'm talking about David Katz, who is the founding director of the Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center and the current president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Uh, Leah, I could go on and on about David's credentials. He has more letters after his name than I actually have in my name, including my middle name. Uh, he... he um, he has two more honorary doctorates than I do, which means he has two, and uh, he's published over 200 scientific articles. He's a Huffington Post influencer. David, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for being with us. I, I appreciate the very kind introduction, Howard. And, and Leah, I think that's really a, a key observation and, and a great place for our conversation to start. And you know, we have lots of things to talk about, Howard, but when we get into issues of, of health, I think one of the, the more common and probably divisive topics about health is who's responsible for it ultimately. And there's sort of a camp that's all about personal responsibility, just you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and deal with it. Uh, and then there's a camp that's a lot about environmental determinism and, you know, kind of, oh, woe is us, the, the, the modern world conspires against our health. And I'm in the middle, and, and we can come back to that. But, uh, you know, I think this issue of checkout counters that are effectively booby-trapped so that, you, you know, you can't get out of any given store without your <laughs> grandchild being eye-to-eye with all of these tempting delights, it's a big issue because ultimately the choice is, any of us makes are subordinate to the choices all of us have. And, you know, it's not really our choice that our, our grandson or daughter or our son or daughter 
you know, is, is going to be uh, overcome with temptation when we go in and out of the store, uh, you know, presumably on some quick errand. Uh, and then we, you know, we either have to succumb and buy them something we may not want them to eat, or we have to have an argument with them that we never wanted to have. And that's been engineered into our day by somebody trying to sell us something, right? And uh, my friends at Center for Science and the Public Interest write about this all the time and, and how I mean, there, there's really a great deal of marketing expertise, and it's not just what gets placed on what shelf where, but even how the packages themselves are designed. It turns out that a lot of kids' breakfast cereals are actually designed <laughs> so that the characters in the images on the box uh, have their gaze directed right at the eyes of our kids and, and grandkids. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just it's this, this layer upon layer of shrewd marketing. And, you know, should it really be your job as a grandma, you know, stepping up to, to look out for your grandchild, to have to navigate past all of that. So a uh, really interesting place to begin the discussion. Anyway, I'm delighted to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I just had this vision of myself with a big black fat marker running through the grocery store crossing out all the eyeballs on the box of the cereal. (laughs) So that's what I'm going to be doing tomorrow morning, folks. All right. Good luck with that. Of course, we'll we'll have to bail you out afterwards, but it'll be worth it. I appreciate that it sounds like you're willing. Uh, and it's not it's it's uh, I'm laughing about it because it seems like it's so outrageous that I myself had a about a hundred pound weight loss uh, would be 18 years ago now and I've you know not put the weight back on but it's been a, it's wow. like you know that just what you're talking about the, the journey between uh, is it my responsibility is it society's responsibility how do we figure that out all the neurological things that are now coming to light about um not only how our brains are, you know, tripped up and, and trained, but if we have any sort of neurological problems, that all of these things that we ingest make those uh, compound those problems and, and make us even worse at making decisions, you know, for our health. So um, I yeah, just think like well, brain fog and sugars and all that. Right, right, right. Well, well, first of all, Leigh, I didn't know that, that story about you. So, wow. Uh, and congratulations, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, Thanks. you know, that, that's that's just fantastic, and, and you know, you hear occasionally about people losing 100 pounds, which is pretty amazing to begin with, but then keeping mm-hmm. it off for 18 years and, and you know, really finding that way to, to convert your lifestyle sustainably for the sake of your health is extremely impressive, so congratulations. Um, Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I trust you are a shining example to many, but, you know, I think we, we've just you know, we blundered into this really important and, and rather fraught topic. And Howard, you know, I, I think there are other directions we can go, but, but let's just start here. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't get through a talk these days without mentioning the work of Michael Moss. Uh, Michael is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist. His book is Salt, Sugar, Fat. Uh, he's mm-hmm. got another book in the works, which I think is going to be terrific. It's called Hooked. And he wrote a New York Times Magazine cover story called The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. And in that essay, uh, Michael did a brilliant job of telling a very important story that actually has been told before. In fact, uh, about 10 years ago, it was told in considerable detail in the Chicago Tribune, but for whatever reason, it it didn't really get traction then, and, and it's getting more now. And this story essentially is that all of the major food companies in the U.S. and around the world all the big ones, hire teams of scientists, PhDs and others, give them the highest tech toys we've got, like functional MRI machines, and marching orders to design foods people can't stop eating. So, you know, that that Lay's potato chip ad we all know, bet you can't eat just one. What we probably didn't recognize at the time was that was a threat. And, you know, it was a threat (laughs) that that those folks were prepared to take to the bank. Uh, but it's not just glazed potato chips. It's pretty much everything in the processed food supply has been manipulated in one way or another to increase the amount of eating we need to do before we cry uncle, to, to maximize the number of calories it takes for us to register fullness. And so you're absolutely right, Lee. I mean, whatever psychological issues any of us has, you know, we've all got ours, you know, but whether it's depression or stress or anxiety or an eating disorder or, you know, pick anything, Um, you know, we're all vulnerable in one way or another, and then potentially, you know, those native vulnerabilities in a world where 
food is wholesome and direct from nature, they would still trouble us, but they wouldn't necessarily express themselves as extreme obesity or type 2 diabetes or metabolic complications because the, the food environment would protect us against the vulnerability rather than compound it. But you take those native vulnerabilities in, in, in the human psyche, which we've always had, uh, and then compound them with a food supply that's literally engineered to be addictive, and it's a formula for a public health disaster, and that public health disaster is all around us in the guise of epidemic obesity, epidemic diabetes, and all sorts of other bad stuff. So th- mm-hmm. that's really what's going on, and it does, I think, lead to really interesting discussions about the, the, the right balance between what we can do for ourselves and what really ought to be handled at the level of the body politic. I, I often say that sometimes the best defenses of the human body reside with the body politic. You know, it, it really, it's not reasonable to ask people to choose good food while going out of our way to offer them bad choices. Um, on the other hand, when you lost the 100 pounds, nobody did it for you, right? I mean, you, you kind of reached a, a conclusion in your life that this needs to happen, and maybe you had help, and, and you know, maybe doctors were part of the formula or, or friends. Or you probably weren't all on your own. Nobody's an island. But nobody right. did it for you either, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's this yes. very challenging yeah, balance to strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so this really gets to the heart of the issue, and I completely agree with you. And I think any reasonable person who knows the data, too, would say there's a balance to be struck between you know, some individual responsibility, of course, but you cannot eliminate the environmental influence on people's behavior. It puts them puts them in way too difficult a spot. You know, you can exercise some self-control, but when you're really being pressured and the temptation is all around you, that becomes very difficult. I'd be interested to know from you, David, in terms of your perception of the state of health in the United States. I mean, for me, you know, we have the most expensive healthcare system. But how would you look at the state of health of the U.S. right now? Uh, I, I would give us, at best, a C, Howard, and, you know, I think there could be arguments for giving us an F, in particular because of the issue you raised. It, it's not that our health lags behind countries all around the world, necessarily. But if you look at the ratio of what we spend on so-called health care, and, and let's be clear, it's a bit of a misnomer, right? I mean, we, we've always called it health care, so we keep calling it health care. Mostly what we mean is disease care. Very little mm-hmm. of it is preventive. Very little of it is about building health at its foundations. Most of it is about treating people after they get sick. And, and then some small portion is come in for a checkup and, you know, we'll check your cholesterol and blood pressure and, and offer you some tips about modifying risk factors. But mostly it's a disease care system. So if you look at the ratio of what we spend, either just absolute dollars or even as a percent of GDP, uh, over what we get in terms of of health returns, which I think are are best measured, not necessarily in terms of life expectancy, but health expectancy, that combination of how long we live and how well we live, years of disease-free life, that ratio is not very favorable here in the U.S. We spend more than any other country. We do lag behind most of our peer countries, so countries, you know, so-called Western or or industrialized countries, we lag behind many of them in all of the key health indicators. We lag well behind a number of countries, Japan, Scandinavian countries, in terms of life expectancy. Uh, We lag behind many uh, in terms of the, the, the prevalence of major chronic diseases, obesity, diabetes, and so forth. So we are sicker. We don't live as long. We're spending a lot more. So that, that ratio of dollars spent per return on investment measured in terms of longevity and vitality is not highly favorable. So, you know, we're somewhere between an F because, hey, you guys are spending a lot and not getting much for it, and a C where we say, okay, our health is not terrible. I mean, we're certainly doing a lot better here than in, um, you know, really impoverished countries, Bangladesh or Sudan, um, but we're not doing nearly as well as we should be. And I think a big part of the problem is this distorted perspective on what health means. We've kind of over-medicalized it, and even the very fact that that this so-called healthcare system we talk about 
isn't really a healthcare system. We, we've done very, very little to look at, you know, what would investments in, in, in health at its origins be about? Uh, how do we emphasize prevention, health promotion? Uh, I think there's been altogether too little of that, Howard. And so I think, David, just as I'm listening, this whole, in Canada, we're very similar, I think, in terms of most of our medical um, information certainly is based on like an illness model of, of, of life versus a wellness model of living. And that anything that's fundable on a personal level has got to do with medications and those kinds of things, not, not preventative health initiatives. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, is there, is there anything that you've seen or any shifts that you've seen where there's more dollars going towards wellness initiatives earlier on in the lifespan of people? Or do you think there's this whole education that needs to happen where people go, oh, this would be the factors that would mean that I am healthy. And I would rather chase that than a bag of Doritos. Yeah. So I I think we, and and I agree, I think a lot of similarities, obviously, between Canada and the U.S., although I I actually think Canada is a bit more enlightened in this area than Mm -hmm. than the U.S. is. There have been a number of interesting initiatives north of the border addressing Mm -hmm. the importance of of lifestyle health and, and what health really means. So if anything, I'd say we ought to look up for a slightly better example than our own, but mostly we're, we're kind of mired in the same basic approaches and the same basic epidemiology. I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I, I'm currently president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Howard kindly mentioned that at the, at the intro. Um, and this is an organization that's devoted to these very issues we're talking about, using lifestyle as medicine. Now, using it as medicine to treat and reverse disease as well, and, and there really is stunning evidence there of what lifestyle can do. With, with all the powerful medications we have, for example, to treat coronary artery disease, none of them has been shown to actually shrink away the plaque that, that plugs up our coronary arteries. But lifestyle interventions, when they're powerful enough, have been shown to do exactly that. Uh, famously, Dean Ornish has published studies in that space where an optimal plant-based diet, routine physical activity, avoidance of toxins like tobacco, good sleep, stress mitigation, strong social interactions uh, has been associated with a dramatic reduction in the occurrence of heart attacks, but also coronary plaque, the, 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 the actual stuff plugging up our arteries, shrinking away. So quite stunning as treatment. But if anything, I think even more impressive for purposes of preventing disease in the first place, promoting health, and uh, lots of studies demonstrating the power of lifestyle as medicine, but also the, this, the, the vivid, luminous example of the world's blue zones. And these are the populations yes, right. around the world right. characterized by National Geographic fellow Dan Butner, where people most routinely live to be 100, don't get chronic disease, don't get dementia, uh, and then they go peaceful and gentle into that good night at the end because, you know, since they're not getting chronic disease, you know, they are still mortal. They eventually die, but more often than not, they go to sleep one night and just don't wake up. So it's it's a long life, it's a vital life, and it's a peaceful exit. It just doesn't get any better than that. So there's yeah. this whole yeah. movement of lifestyle medicine that's really dedicated to that proposition. And I have witnessed over the, the tenure of my presidency just an explosion in the interest in this field here in the United States. And, and as we speak, I'm just back from Australia just a few days ago, uh, where, among other things, I, I gave a talk to the Australasian Society for Lifestyle Medicine. Uh, and this organization is brand new, and it's growing like gangbusters. Uh, there's a new Lifestyle Medicine Society in Korea. There is a new European Lifestyle Medicine Organization. There's a global Lifestyle Medicine Alliance. This is a global movement. Uh, there are organizations that are being developed, growing rapidly, uh, and expressing incredible energy and passion all around the world. So I, I think there is a massive movement in this direction involving health professionals. I think there's considerable interest by the folks paying the bills because I, I think they've come to recognize the status quo is untenable. Uh, we really can't afford business as usual. There are really insightful physician authors like Atul Gawande writing about over-medicalization and the idea that you know we're sort of turning everything into a pathology that requires a drug. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm inclined to think about ADHD. I've got five kids, four, four daughters and a son. 
And, you know, when he was a little guy, yeah, my son was a little bit inclined to, to bounce off walls, but, this, you know, he was rambunctious. There was really nothing wrong with him that, that mm-hmm. routine bouts of exercise didn't fix. Uh, but given the opportunity, I think, you know, some teacher would have said, hey, your kid's hyperactive, and some pediatrician would have prescribed Ritalin. But the proper yeah. remedy mm-hmm. for rambunctiousness in our kids is recess, not Ritalin, and thankfully <laughs> that's what my son wound up getting. Uh, you know, so I think there are a lot of elements that are starting to align that will favor yep. the ascendancy of lifestyle as medicine, but we clearly got a long way to go. Great. And we have to stop for a break, but after the break, let's pursue that a bit more, and perhaps you can tell us about some of those programs um, that are focusing on lifestyle for promotion and prevention. So we'll be back after the break with Dr. David Katz. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you've been searching for fat loss and mental clarity in one place, think ketosis. Maybe you've heard about a ketogenic diet but have been totally turned off by the painstaking effort to do it. Well, agonize no longer because there is a solution. What could be just as simple and easy as taking your daily vitamins? Visit reallifetraining.expert to find out. Raise your hand and get in on the front end of the total wellness revolution. Get well, manage your mood, clear your mind. Visit reallifetraining.expert now. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Master Your Life. To reach Leah Mattinson, Dr. Howard Rankin, or their guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Leah, that's L-E-A-H-A, at changeyourlife.expert. Now, back to Master Your Life. Welcome back to Master Your Life. I'm Dr. Howard Rankin, along with my co-host, Leah Mattinson. And today we're talking with... Dr. David Katz, a renowned health promotion expert, and that doesn't even do him justice. But we've been talking about the balance between environmental and cultural factors and individual factors in health and the role of health promotion and health prevention generally um, and lifestyle as medicine. And this is very valuable, I think, and it's really critical. And David, I'd, uh, you may know that I've been doing a little work with um, Dr. Dean and Aisha Shazai, who are two well-renowned uh, neurologists who have been educating me as well as uh, the population about the role of lifestyle in dementia, for example. And mm-hmm. I mention that because most people think of dementia and Alzheimer's, oh, it's genetic and that's all there is. And, and in fact, it isn't. Um, or, or it's it's got a lot, lot, lot more to do with lifestyle um, than than genes. You know, for a few people it's genetic, but for most of us, it is the interaction of lifestyle, and, and that I think is eye opening. I, I totally agree, Howard. And you know, obviously you're getting some really expert insights from from your colleagues. But few few comments from altitude, really about two specific things. So let's talk separately about the preventability of dementia and, and, you know, most people have in mind Alzheimer's when we talk about dementia. And then let's talk specifically about genetics and what it really means. So Mm -hmm. in terms of the preventability of dementia, there there are two prevailing camps when you look at the scientific literature. One argument is that Alzheimer's and, and most forms of dementia have an awful lot in common with coronary artery disease. So the things that put you at risk for vascular disease put you at risk for dementia, and if you fix them, so in other words, you address all of those known cardiac risk factors uh, on everybody's list, your blood pressure is good, your glucose is good, your cholesterol is good, your weight is good, your diet's good, your exercise is good, all, all that stuff, you markedly reduce your risk of, of getting dementia. The other camp, and I, I think if anything, this may be the stronger argument now, although it points in all the same directions for prevention, is that Alzheimer's dementia is type 3 diabetes. So, you know, we've all heard type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Well, type 3 diabetes is essentially 
it's diabetes of the central nervous system. And, and, and what that literature develops is the idea that some people who are prone to insulin resistance seem to be especially vulnerable to the adverse effects of that on the brain and the nervous system. Uh, and that the, the insulin resistance that makes it hard to get glucose into cells can, can kind of preferentially affect the brain, which is highly dependent on glucose. And, and so you wind up with high levels of in, insulin uh, affecting the, the brain adversely, and that propagates the development of dementia. Well, you know, the good news there is we know an awful lot about preventing type 2 diabetes, and it all seems to work for type 3 diabetes as well. So, again, we're talking about eating well, being active, not consuming excess sugar, eating foods close to nature, not drinking soda, drinking water instead, being physically active, controlling your weight, dramatic protection against dementia. And, and we have evidence of this in intervention studies. There's evidence of this from animal models. And then there's really compelling evidence of this when we look around the world at populations that simply don't seem to get dementia very often. Again, like those blue zone populations I, I mentioned earlier in the tribute. So, so I think one whole domain of really interesting discussion is dementia, you know, it's not a boogeyman that's just going to leap out of the shadows and get us. We can do a lot to defend ourselves against it, just as we defend ourselves against heart disease, stroke, uh, diabetes, and cancer. The other topic, and they're closely related, is, is you mentioning genetics, and I, I think it's really crucial to point out to people that, yes, our genes say something about our vulnerability, but they say very little about our destiny. DNA is not destiny, and, and you know, I, I know you know this. Um, you know, we, we sort of started out with a wild enthusiasm for decoding the genome, and I think kind of caught up in that excitement about unraveling the mysteries of the genome was the idea that, that DNA is our destiny. And what we've come to realize over the span of the last decade or so is that with a very rare exception, that isn't true, and, and the rare exceptions are things like sickle cell anemia or Huntington's disease, where if you have the genes, you get the condition. But those are very much the exception, not the rule. And most of the time, the action is all at the level of what we call epigenetics. And, it, you know, it turns out that our genes make up very little of the real estate in our chromosomes. Most of that real estate is the epigenome, which is switches, essentially dials and levers, if you will, but dial, dials and levers written in the language of DNA that control what our genes do. And there is Nobel Prize winning research in medicine showing that lifestyle interventions can change those switches, alter what our genes do. And, and so, you know, DNA isn't destiny, and to a degree most people don't appreciate, dinner actually is because, you know, you change your lifestyle, you, you change the behavior of your very genes. So we can defend against our genetic vulnerabilities, but we can actually rewrite our genetic vulnerabilities by changing what our genes are doing by changing what we do in our daily routines. And I just want to weigh in a little bit on the uh, <laughs> on the, D- the DNA is not our destiny. And, and David's surprise number two is that I'm actually uh, uh, gene positive for Huntington's disease. So uh, in, in my family, uh, my father, though, is, you know, 78 years old. And, and I would say he's in fantastic shape in comparison to some of the rest of our family members. Uh, what, what I want to say to our listening audience, though, <laughs> is that... When we have these genetic sort of, you know, preconditions to things, it absolutely means that we can also, you know, kind of, uh, you know, get on get on a plan of controlling as much as we possibly can of that gene expression and being as healthy for as long as we can. Uh, it doesn't mean to throw in the towel and go, oh, darn, I've got fill in the blank here and <laughs> I'm just going to quit and go curl up with my 12 box of sugared donuts <laughs> and bottle of wine. It means, you know, that there's all of these lifestyle factors that really do lead to us being well. And it's almost thinking of it on a moment to moment basis. Um, and, and part of the thing that you just didn't kind of mention about um, uh, controlling uh, the expression of illness is the social connections. And I know you mentioned it in the first segment. In this segment, I think that like the having great social connections is also about when you're well, you make better social connections. And that 
people who are looking at, well, why do I want to be healthy? What does it matter? What does it matter if I fit into a size four pair of jeans or a size 12 pair of jeans? Um, you know, who cares if I have to sit in the doctor's office for the next three hours? I wasn't doing anything with my time anyway. <laughs> so the the mentality of going, if I am well, then I will have great social connections and great social connections lead to, you know, better intimacy, which uh, intimacy is the Dorito. You know, uh, uh, it's the replacement of those those things. So connection with other human beings on a real love level uh, is will fill up the tank of all of those sugars that you're letting go of. That's just kind of my thought on that. Yeah, no, Lee, I think it's it, beautiful uh, contribution to the discussion and really important. So I, I think there are two key things to, to reiterate and emphasize. One is that all of these components of the lifestyle medicine recipe are yes. interactive and mutually reinforcing. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you are healthier it's easier to get out there and cultivate relationships and do things with people and, and, and kind of build that solidarity. And then that solidarity absolutely helps make you healthier because you look at the formula that over and over again all around the world is most consistently associated with longevity and vitality. It's feed forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love every time. Mm-hmm. So feed is physical activity, forks is dietary patterns, fingers is not holding cigarettes, getting enough mm-hmm. sleep, not being stressed out or, or doing something to manage stress, and love, cultivating strong social connections, whether it's to you know romantic love or, or family or, or friends. All love is good love. And these things reinforce one another, mm-hmm. and you know it's really hard to say which is the key ingredient. I think it's the whole recipe. Totally agree. And then I think the other point you're making is one I don't think we can emphasize this enough, and that is healthy people have more fun. You know, I mean, I think right. all too often, you, know, <laughs> you, you, you know, you get into a discussion about health and, and, you know, I think everybody sort of conjures this image of a wagging, admonishing finger. You should do this because it's the right thing to do. You know, it takes on these moral overtones. Uh, yeah. And I've long talked to my patients about the issue that, you know, hey, you know, we should be talking about why do you care about being healthy in the first place? Why do you come to me? It's not so that I can tell you what you should do. It's because you probably recognize at some level that if you're healthy, your life will be better. I mean, that's why you want to do this, not because I say yes. so, right? Healthy people have more fun. So absolutely. I mean, that's, it's the donut, it's the Dorito, it's the chocolate, it's I mean, whatever, whatever floats your boat. I mean, you know, the simple reality is that vitality and energy every day feels great. Uh, that's what this is for. You'll have a better life and everybody wants that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps we should change it from healthcare to fun care and perhaps that would get uh, more people involved okay so let's get to what may be the $64,000 question um, which may not even be answerable I know that you have implemented many initiatives to help change the environment and you know promote health prevent health whether that's at the level of better labeling of foods to more activity in the classroom um first of all perhaps tell us about some of those initiatives and then talk about if you really had the power uh, to do it what would you really like to see done that would elevate health overall not just in this country Okay, so uh, as you say, Howard, I mean, my career really has been devoted to the practical aspects of this. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm the kind of guy who I, I, I'm a scientist. I run studies, but on the other hand, if my foot were to catch on fire, I wouldn't need a randomized clinical trial to fetch a pail of water. And I kind of looked, I sort of looked out at the, the public health landscape that way and thought, well, you know, what's broken is fairly obvious. Let's fix it. So, you know, we know. Physical activity is important for kids and adults, and we know that neither group is getting enough. And the questions are why. And, and, you know, we've got too much labor-saving technology and crazy, hectic schedules. And, okay, so you're telling me in the modern world kids are not going to get an hour of phys ed every day, and they're not going to get recess every day. But, you know, what if we give them five minutes of physical activity once an hour throughout the day? Would that fit better in the modern school day? So we designed a program to do exactly that called ABC for Fitness, and it's available for free, and we've studied it and published it, and it's active in schools uh, throughout the U.S. And, and around the world. 
we developed a program for adults uh, in for, for use in the workplace throughout the workday, uh, put together just the same way, and it's a it's a library of physical activity videos you can follow throughout the workday called ABE for Fitness Activity Burst Everywhere. So we've got Activity Burst in the Classroom for Kids, ABC for Fitness, and ABE for Fitness for Adults. We've got a, a food label literacy program, which we designed for kids but also works for adults, that teaches people how to trade up their groceries called Nutrition Detectives. And, and, and then we, we've got a, a food guidance program, a nutrient profiling system in about 2,000 supermarkets throughout the U.S. called NuVal, which we developed in my lab. Uh, one to a hundred, the higher the number, the more nutritious the food. You can get an overview on all of this and, and our many other programs as well, either at my website, which is davidcatsmd.com, and it's a, basically a hub that leads to all the different stuff I'm involved in. Uh, I also have a nonprofit foundation because all these things I'm describing we, we give away for free, um, and that site is turnthetidefoundation.org. So either of those places, you can access these programs, you can download the materials, you can get the Nutrition Detectives DVD, all that good stuff. So, you know, essentially, the way I thought of this, Howard, is that we're all up against the flood of, of factors that conspire against our health, a flood of highly processed, hyper-palatable, energy-dense, nutrient-dilute, glow-in-the-dark kind of foods, <laughs> uh, constant flow of marketing dollars encouraging us and Leah's grandson to eat all the wrong foods in all the wrong quantities, right. uh, wave after wave of technological advance where invention is the mother of necessity, giving us gadgets <laughs> and gizmos we never needed in the first place that are now replacing the work of muscles all the time. Uh, and if you want to contain and reverse the, the, the flow of those floodwaters, we need something like a levy. So each of these programs is a sandbag in that levy. And no one of them is enough to fix it by itself. But if we do enough of this kind of stuff in enough places for enough people, eventually it does become enough. So that's been the mission there. The answer to your second question, you know, what, what's what's the big thing that, I, that I'd like to see change? Well, well I'll sort of quick two-part answer. First, we need clarity around the right answer. Uh, we need to agree on what lifestyle as medicine looks like. We have the science we need to do that, uh, but we don't do it. Uh, you know, in our culture, there's a, a new diet segment on Good Morning America and the Today Show almost every day. There's a new fad diet book out almost every week. There's constant bickering about my diet can be your diet. We're being told in the media all the time that we're confused. And, and the simple fact is it's not true. There is a, a real clarity in the weight of evidence about the fundamentals of healthy eating and healthy living. And there is a massive global consensus among experts as well about 80 to 90 to 95 percent of it. We disagree about some details, but we agree overwhelmingly about that formula. And I think one key thing that I'd like to see happen in the world is for the, the population at large, everybody, to understand that we know where there is. You can't get there from here if you don't know where there is, and we do know where there is. So I've actually devoted this stage of my career to something called the True Health Initiative. Uh, I founded this. Uh, it's accessible at truehealthinitiative.org. And it is a global coalition of extremely diverse experts banding together to say, we agree about the fundamentals of healthy living, including healthy eating, and we're willing to stand up and be counted. And the beauty of this thing is that the, our council of directors, which is over 300 strong from 30 countries, first of all, it's, it's, an, it's a who's who. We have three former <laughs> surgeons general of the United States. We have chairs of departments and deans and uh, we have the Obama's personal chef. We have uh, uh, Mark Bittman, the, the nutrition writer. We have Sanjay Gupta, the household names. But it, it, in some ways, what's more impressive, Howard, is that this group ranges from vegan to paleo. I mean, I think most people think, gee, those people don't agree about anything. Uh, you know, the paleos basically want to club right. the vegans over the head with, uh, you know, a leg of moose, and, the, you know, the vegans want to poke the paleos' eyes out with a carrot. Uh, but the reality is, you know, when they know what they're doing, experts in vegan diets eat all plants, and experts in paleo diets eat most of the plants along with wild salmon. Do you, you need a break? Or? Yeah. yeah, actually, um, if this is a good time to stop, but we'll pick it up 
um, in the last segment. And specifically, I think you've mentioned some great resources of your own that people can go to. Um, in this last section, perhaps we give people more of some tools and practical advice that they can do even in this difficult situation where people's health um, perhaps is not as much under their control as they'd like. So we'll be back right after the break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you've been searching for fat loss and mental clarity in one place, think ketosis. Maybe you've heard about a ketogenic diet but have been totally turned off by the painstaking effort to do it. Well, agonize no longer because there is a solution. What could be just as simple and easy as taking your daily vitamins? Visit reallifetraining.expert to find out. Raise your hand and get in on the front end of the total wellness revolution. Get well, manage your mood, clear your mind. Visit reallifetraining.expert now. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Master Your Life. To reach Leah Mattinson, Dr. Howard Rankin, or their guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Leah. That's L-E-A-H-A at changeyourlife.expert. Now, back to Master Your Life. Welcome back to Master Your Life. Dr. Howard Rankin with Leah Manson, and today we have the privilege of talking with Dr. David Katz, one of the world's leading experts in uh, lifestyle as medicine, health promotion, and prevention. Just before the break, David, we were talking about different programs and things that people do. Perhaps you'd like to finish your thought. Yeah, so, so I was saying, Howard, I think one of the, the key ingredients that, that we really need to rally around is just the clarity about what lifestyle as medicine looks like, including the fundamentals of a healthy diet. And, uh, you know, we could sort of compare that to uh, the, the lunar missions. You know, we got to the moon, which seemed like a pretty daunting thing to do, and I, I think there were three key elements there. We wanted to go. We're an ingenious species, and we knew where to find the darn thing. I think we want to go to a world where there's 80% less chronic disease. We're still an ingenious species. I, I think it would massively advance the mission if we would rally around the fact that we know where there is. So the True Health Initiative is devoted to that enterprise, and I, I invite people to visit that website and check it out, truehealthinitiative.org. And then, you know, the other thing you asked me, you know, what's the one big thing I'd like to see change? I think we have to be brutally honest with ourselves and acknowledge that there really is a degree of cultural hypocrisy that we've got to overcome. We wring our hands about epidemic obesity and diabetes in children, but we aggressively market multicolored marshmallows as part of a complete breakfast. Uh, you know, and I, I think until we hold Absolutely. our culture accountable for profiting at the expense of public health, you know, we're sort of placing an excessive burden on individuals asking them to overcome all of that. So uh, I think we really need to look at ourselves, look at our culture in the mirror and say, you know, are, are we really acting in a way that aligns with our, our principles and our priorities? And I, I think the answer would be no, and I think it would invite us all collectively uh, to engage in some soul-searching and some significant changes. Yeah, and I like the way that you put that, David, just about the having the um, uh, collective sort of uh, culture shift but the collective is made up of individuals. <laughs> so, so if we kind of individually can't get our head around some sort of social responsibility or, or moral responsibility, kind of that, uh, we've talked about, um, Howard has a site called I Think Therefore I Am Wrong, <laughs> and kind of getting our heads around that we can talk ourselves into doing lots of really great things, but more often than not, we talk ourselves into doing things that are not so hot for us. And that... Um, uh, when we as a group get together, we can help support each other to maybe make better decisions. Uh, so uh, how do you do that on like a whole national sort of a scale when individuals are pushing so hard against their own uh, responsibility for their wellness? 
So, uh, you know, I, I'm tempted to actually go the other way and say, what can individuals mm-hmm. do? Because, I, you know, I agree with you that the public is you and me and everybody else. I mean, we, we could argue that, you know, maybe the right thing to do is think globally about the body politic and the public, but act locally under our own roof. You know, what, what can you do? What can I do? And you've already done it. You, you lost 100 pounds and kept it off. So, again, you're, you're a, just a beautiful example of the possible. But, mm-hmm. you know, I would argue that we can't just keep waiting on the world to change, and no one of us can change everybody, but every one of us mm-hmm. could change what we do in our own lives every day and what our families do. So I, I argue for something I like to call skill power. I, I think we talk too much about willpower, and I think we mm-hmm. ignore the issue of skill power. Healthy people have more fun, but one of the ways they get there is by having skills that allow them to be healthy in the first place, skills for knowing how to eat well, skills for things like cooking, skills for time management so they can fit physical activity into their daily routine and, and, and all of that. Um, I've yes. written about this in, in some of my books, and, and at what I've tried to do really is look at the skills I rely on as a preventive medicine specialist and figure out how can I pay these forward. And I'll give you one example of what I think of as, as skill power and the sort of thing that individuals could latch onto to get started. Um, taste buds are adaptable little fellas. When they can't be with the foods they're used to loving, they learn to love the foods they're with, and, and that can work for us or against us. So, you know, if, if you feed them ever more junk food, you're eating ever more sugar, ever more salt, ever more food chemicals, you come to prefer all of that, and then, you know, frankly, an apple tastes funny. But if you go the other way, if you eat less processed food, more wholesome food, foods closer to nature, you're eating ever less sugar, ever less salt. Uh, the result of that is your taste buds come out of the sugar-induced coma they've been in, um, and all the food you're eating starts to taste a whole lot sweeter and saltier to you, and you actually prefer less processed foods and, and foods with shorter ingredient lists. So well, let's just say you have a sweet tooth and it's conspiring against your diet and your health, and you're thinking, well, the only way to fix this is to cut out dessert, but you love dessert. And so it's really hard, and you try it for two weeks, and then you miss dessert, and you go back to eating it, and you've accomplished nothing. I would argue that the skill power approach to that kind of problem would be trade up your salad dressing, trade up your pasta sauce, trade up your crackers and chips and bread. There are pasta sauces, marinara sauces, on every supermarket shelf in North America with literally more added sugar than ice cream topping and sitting mm-hmm. right next to them in a jar that looks the same, cost the same, and frankly tastes pretty similar is marinara sauce with no added sugar, and most people don't know the difference. Yeah. Well, the difference matters in terms of the sugar you consume every day, in terms of the calories you consume every day, and in terms of how much sugar you like at dessert time. So you trade up that pasta sauce. It's not a heavy lift. But it makes a big difference. And if you do that in, in choices in every aisle of the supermarket, the, the cumulative effect on your diet is huge. The cumulative effect on your palate is huge. You really become more sensitive to sugar. And the same concept applies to salt and, and everything else that's wrong with, with our dietary choices. Well, you know, this becomes an incremental approach to improving your own diet. You can, if you're the one who does the shopping, you're doing the same thing for everybody in your household, and you start to cultivate that skill power approach to better health, and then maybe you talk to your friends about it, and then they try it too, and the next thing you know, there's a community of people who are shopping better, and now you know what? The supermarket is starting to notice that some brands are selling better than others, and their portfolio isn't quite right, and they start to shift to better uh, products that they're selling in the first place. And the food supply gets a little bit better, and, and on and on we go. So ultimately, we want to change culture. We want to change the world. But no one of us can just keep waiting on the world to change. And, and I think if we mm-hmm. apply still power and think about this one step at a time, we can change the world by starting with changing ourselves and, and the, the health environment under our own roof. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's excellent advice. I mean, it's, it, it would be nice to think that, you know, somehow politically we can rein in um, misleading advertising, change uh, the way food manufacturers process food, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and maybe one day that'll come, but, but realistically right, I don't, we have to. Let's not hold our breath, right? Yeah, I mean, we'll yeah, no, pass out. Right. We, we'll no, definitely not do- pass out if we're holding our breath. No, I agree, Howard. I don't think it's an either-or. Uh, you know, I, I'm definitely involved in, in efforts that relate to policy change, and I, I have colleagues that, that, you know, that's their whole career. They're really all about 
uh, policy change and legislation, and, and some are very focused on litigation and all the different things we can do to try and get to a better food supply and, and a better health environment. And, and I support all of that. But, you know, one of the things I, I've long maintained is that the ultimate power over the food supply is the food demand. And if enough Correct. of us change the way we vote at the cash register, uh, there's mm-hmm. no question that the sellers are going to get that message, and, and they will change the food supply. We've seen it happen. Unfortunately, we haven't seen it happen in very functional ways. It's mostly been we've shifted from low-fat junk food to low-carb junk food to gluten-free junk food. I mean, it's all been pretty silly. But still, right. we've seen the food supply jump through hoops to give us what we think we want. If we could just learn to want wholesome, less processed, better-for-us food, mm-hmm. the food supply would shift in that direction, too. And I, I think that is the next big trend. So, David, I just I just want to. We've only got about a minute and a half left, and I just want to highlight for our listeners a couple of uh, thoughts, and then have you kind of talk about your websites again for people to be able to go and check in. So, uh, if there's just one thing that they could practice this week, it might be taste bud rehab, and maybe the second component would be love more. So if you have very, those two takeaways two as listeners, that would be fantastic. Yep. And maybe you could just mention your uh, websites again real quick. David? Sure. Thank you, Leah. So davidcatsmd.com is kind of, you know, all the different stuff that I do, and it's a portal to all these others. Um, the, the website for my nonprofit where a lot of these programs are directly available to you is turnthetidefoundation.org. And then I encourage everybody to see what a global coalition of experts thinks is the lifestyle medicine formula at truehealthinitiative.org. And you can also sign up and join us and add your voice to the chorus there. Uh, and I'm certainly going on those sites right now as soon as we finished. Um, David, I just want to thank you so much for your time and for your insight and for your intelligence um, in what is really a very critical area. Too much, it becomes down to the individual. And, of course, we do have to look at what we do as individuals, but there's so many other factors involved that this, I think, has been hopefully inspiring um, for all our listeners. So, again, David, thank you so much. Hopefully, you'll agree to come on on the show some other time so we can continue the conversation. But for now, I'm Dr. Howard Rankin and my co-host, Leah Manson. We'll see you next time on Master Your Life. Thank you for being a part of our show today. Master Your Life with Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin can be heard every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, Go enjoy your successful life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.